pleasure to be with you. Pleasure to be with you all. Well, the title of my talk today is Palestine, Israel, Britain's role then and now. Um, I intend to do a fresh start rather than refer back directly to my talk of uh, April 2020 because a lot's changed. Um, I'd like to begin by repeating and reinforcing what Diana has said about what the Balfour Project charity is for, what our aims are. Then a bit about the history before and during the time when Britain ran Palestine up to 1948. Something about now, the dire situation on the ground, but more particularly the attitude of our government and civil society to it, uh, the focus more on us than on telling Israel or Palestine what to do. And the focus will be on human rights and the rule of law. And finally, the future and what the Balfour Project and you can do to change things for the better. Because if there's no change, things will get worse. That's hard to believe, but it's true. So first of all, the aims of the Balfour Project. It's a charity which uh, offers opportunities and constraints. We acknowledge Britain's historical and continuing responsibilities for what happened and therefore what happens in the region. And through popular education, awareness raising and advocacy, we seek to uphold and secure equal rights for the Israeli and Palestinian peoples. We ask the British government to recognize the state of Palestine alongside the state of Israel. I repeat, alongside the state of Israel. We wish the best for Israelis and for Palestinians. The key messages are responsibility, British responsibility, equal rights and international law. In other words, we ask our government and civil society to understand what the Balfour Declaration and Palestine mean for both Jews and Arabs, to acknowledge that whilst a homeland for the Jewish people has been achieved, the promise to protect the rights of the Palestinian people has not been kept. To urge the people and elected representatives of the UK to take effective action to promote justice, security, and peace for both peoples. And I will add, there is a self-evident need to end the occupation of June 1967 and to enable the Palestinian people to exercise freely their right to determine their own future, the right of self-determination, including the option of statehood. The charity believes that reconciliation must come between the peoples of Israel and Palestine, and that it must come on the basis of equal rights. We're keen to engage with people in the UK from the three Abrahamic faiths, and also with people of other faiths and none. And that covers the multitude. So much for the aims. A word about history, and first of all, to say, as uh, Diana said, I'm a diplomat, not a historian. I'm going to focus on Britain, and I'm going to be brief, because I'd like to talk about now and the future more than about the past. Britain made contradictory promises 
in World War I and beyond. In 1915, Sir Henry McMahon, British High Commissioner to Egypt, promised Hossein Ben Ali, Sharif of Mecca, an Arab state, including Palestine, if he rose against the Ottoman Empire. He duly rose, Lawrence of Arabia helped him, that promise was not kept. In 1916, there was the Sykes-Picot Agreement, a carve-up of the region between the French and the British, which didn't particularly last. And then something which did last, the Balfour Declaration of 2 November 1917, which was incorporated into the mandate that Britain acquired, sought and acquired from the League of Nations in 1923. The promise is well known. I won't repeat it, but it's contradictory, in inherently contradictory. The mandate talks about the well-being and development of the people of Palestine. It's worth bearing in mind that in 1917 and 1923, 90% of the population of Palestine was Arab. And the mandate talks about a sacred trust of civilization to help the well-being and development of those people. As I said, the Balfour Declaration was incorporated into the mandate, and that's also contradictory. Arthur Balfour, the Foreign Secretary of 1917, is on the record as believing that fulfilling that promise was essential, the promise of a homeland for the Jewish people. And the views of the Arab majority were, in his mind, an obstacle to overcome or bypass. And bypass those Arab majority views, we did. To quote the late British historian of Israel, Sir Martin Gilbert, in a lecture in Israel in 2011, quote, the centerpiece of British mandatory policy was the withholding of representative institutions for as long as there was in Palestine an Arab majority, unquote. I believe that to be true. There are many valid analyses of the reasoning behind UK government policy in the region in the first half of the 20th century. Here are a few. Political expediency, desperation in war and expediency in peacetime. Another is imperial arrogance, somehow to protect the passage to India and the Mediterranean. There's also the most literal interpretation of the Bible, that God gave this land to the Jews, to the people of Israel. And certainly some of the First World War UK cabinet were what's called restorationists, what we might now call Christian Zionists. I will not dwell on the saga of Britain's ignominious withdrawal from Palestine in 1948. The story is well told in many books, including Ian Black's book, Enemies and Neighbours, covering the hundred years from Balfour on, including the creation of the modern state of Israel in 1948 and the Nakba, or catastrophe that befell the Palestinians. I'd like to say a word about the Palestine police force created in 1920, working until 1948 when it was disbanded. In my opinion, it, the Palestine police force, as against the auxiliaries, tried to hold the ring, were let down by their political leaders, 
did what they could. I saw the graves of some of those people, men and women, in the Protestant cemetery on Mount Zion, who'd been killed in the Camp David Hotel bombing of 1946. Back to the Nakba. The Nakba is not an episode in history. It is a lived reality today, lived by Palestinians and witnessed by all who have eyes to see and are willing to look. To anyone who thinks what's happening now is okay, I say, look again. As we leave history and move on to now, may I pause on November 1967 and UN Security Council Resolution 242. Drafted by the UK, agreed unanimously five months after the June war, it condemns the acquiring of territory by force and calls for Israel to withdraw from territories occupied. Yet the occupation of 1967 continues today. Gaza, East Jerusalem, and the rest of the West Bank. Abnormal, but it's become the norm. Resolutions come and go. 242, 338. In 2016, 2334, there is a long list of resolutions. The failure to implement them is chronic and undermines the genuine importance of international law, which was the focus of the latest Balfour Project conference in May this year. More on that later. I come to now and Britain's role, government and civil society. As Deanna said, I gave a talk on this theme in April 2020, and I look back at it as I worked on this one. Then I gave our government, the British government, credit for some things. For example, substantial funding of the UN Relief Works Agency and even the Palestinian Authority. After my talk, and not because of it, Boris Johnson voiced his opposition to Mr. Netanyahu's then planned formal annexation of parts of the West Bank. In my talk, I also criticized Mr. Johnson for his policy of appeasement towards President Trump and Trump's deal of the century. Appeasement, which involved finding value in the deal where there was none. Where are we now in terms of British government policy? Judge for yourself, UK funding for UNRWA and the Palestinian Authority slashed. The crass letter from Mr. Johnson to Conservative Friends of Israel, hailing the independence of the International Criminal Court and then sabotaging that independence by saying there should be no investigation into alleged war crimes by Palestinians and Israelis. The promise in the Queen's speech of legislation to prevent local authorities from making ethical investment and procurement decisions in relation to illegal Israeli settlements. The bizarre argument being that somehow those ethical decisions legitimize anti-Semitism. 
some truly outlandish UK voting in the UN Human Rights Council. For example, in March of this year, refusing to condemn Israeli settlements on a technicality while affirming that our UK policy is unchanged. Voting against a UN Commission of Inquiry into the causes of the fighting in Gaza, Israel and Jerusalem in May. On the plus side, there is a good, honest, focused Consul General in Jerusalem, Diane Corner. She is concerned about evictions in Sheikh Jarrah, demolitions in Silwan, and the repeated destruction of the village of Homsa al baqayah Diane goes to these hotspots and reports from the ground. The truth reaches Whitehall. It's what happens then, or rather doesn't happen then, that is of concern. And where lobbying of MPs and nagging of our government can and does help. I understand well the argument that it is right currently not to write off this new Israeli government, something of a patchwork quilt. But equally, Prime Minister Bennett needs to know that breaking the law, which is what settlement construction is, has consequences. He needs to hear that from Britain. And I don't think he is hearing about consequences from Britain. I said that we don't seek as a charity to tell other people, other countries what to do. Having said that, there are some things to do with the Palestinian political leadership, as well as messages to the Israeli government. Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab got it right when, first of all, he deplored President Abbas's decision to postpone elections. And secondly, he called for Israel to enable Palestinians in East Jerusalem to vote in Palestinian elections. Britain has influence in Ramallah, arguably more influence in Ramallah than in Israel, and can use it to press for elections, even if the USA and Israel, and probably Jordan, don't want elections. The UK should commit to work with whoever wins those elections. The UK can also press for an end to Palestinian authority harassment of political opponents, so that Nizar Banat did not die for nothing. I hope and trust that UK pressure is being exerted. Before I talk about what we in civil society can do to influence UK government policy to effect change on the ground, a few words about the role of the USA. First, President Biden is better than Trump. That's quite important. It's important for the world. Second, President Biden will not willingly prioritize ending the occupation as against managing it. So don't buy the line that we have to wait for the Americans. We don't have to, 
and we shouldn't. And we have to work where we are. And for Brits, that's right here. I'm conscious that our audience is wide in Europe and in the United States and elsewhere. We need to work where we are. And the Balfour Project does that. So what can we do? Where can you help if you're minded to? First of all, if you care, don't give up. It's what those who like the status quo want you to do. Don't give them the pleasure. Second, here in the UK, we are a functioning, if rather creaky, parliamentary democracy. Lobby your MP. Get them to convey your thoughts to ministers. It does matter. I've been told from inside the Foreign Office, now FCDO, Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, it does matter. Our government says it, it, it respects international law. That, sadly, is an increasingly dubious assertion. Given the recent declared intent to override international law in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol, the Chagos Islands, and the independence of the ICC. Nevertheless, this government will continue to say it. So we can take the government at its word and press it to uphold the law in deed, not just in word. That's why the Balfour Project assembled some powerful legal and political minds to address the theme, Israel-Palestine in search of the rule of law in May of this year. The recording is on our website. There's also a booklet of essays by politicians and others, including Hannah Weisfeld of Yachad, um, about what's wrong and what can be done to put things better, right? And that booklet is also available on our website as a PDF. The highlights of the conference have been transcribed and will come to an email address near you soon. The conference ended with a Balfour Project statement of which we are proud, which, which has gone to Mr. Johnson and Mr. Raab under a letter from several MPs. You will find that statement in the chat with one we issued last October at our Jerusalem virtual conference. It's very important that ministers are made aware of your strength of feeling on these issues. The key point is that equal rights with mutual security for Israelis and Palestinians, not surface level superficial security for one people at the expense of another. That's not genuine security for anybody. I'm glad to say that some good things have happened this year. Some examples. The Irish Foreign Minister, Simon Coveney, has confirmed that the Israeli settlement project in East Jerusalem and the West Bank equals annexation. 
This matters because some European governments were preparing to respond last year to Netanyahu's bid for formal annexation with consequences for such an illegal act. Now, Ireland has confirmed that settlements equate to annexation. So consequences should follow, ideally concerted among the like-minded countries of Europe. It's for politicians, not for charities, to determine what the consequences should be. But let me mention one option close to home. Last year, Shadow Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy announced that if Mr. Netanyahu went ahead with formal annexation, Labour Party policy would change to favour a ban on import importing settlement products. Now, Ireland has stated that settlements equals annexation, which is true. Will Labour concur and introduce its policy change? Another good thing happened. The Jerusalem Declaration on Antisemitism, signed by eminent Jewish lawyers and academics, it is a clearer, more precise definition than the one put together by the International Holocaust Rem Remembrance Alliance, IHRA, which should never be used and should never have been used for regulatory purposes. The Balfour Project strongly commends the Jerusalem Declaration on Antisemitism. The link is now in the chat. Apartheid, an awful practice, but it is good to call things by their name. In March 2017, Boris Johnson, then Foreign Secretary, told the truth. He told Mr. Netanyahu that, quote, you either have a two-state solution or some kind of apartheid system, unquote. Well, we don't have a two-state solution today. Michael Spard, Betselem, and Human Rights Watch have all concluded that apartheid is being practiced in the occupied Palestinian territory. Other highly reputable NGOs will report later this year. It's important. And the Balfour Project charity wants to draw your attention to what's important. Education, raising awareness here in Europe and around the world, that's important. The Balfour Project seeks, with others, to increase awareness of the facts and of Britain's role in creating them. To that end, in this last academic year, we recruited and funded 14 postgraduate students in UK universities as Balfour Project Peace Advocacy Fellows, working to further the aims of the charity. Last year, during the lockdowns, it was through project work. For example, analyzing the impact on campus of the IHRA definition. That unique analysis and rich analysis 
will be on our website soon with three other projects by fellows. For the 2021-22 academic year, we aim to recruit more. We aim to recruit 20 fellows, undergraduates and postgraduates. That's more ambitious, more expensive, but worth the effort and the cost. Secondary school education matters. Israel-Palestine is taught in too few secondary schools in our country. It's a key part of Britain's imperial colonial past, though not a glorious part. To understand the present, you need to know how we got to here and what was done in our name. You may know of the Pearson debacle, when a secondary school textbook was subjected to 300 amendments by UK lawyers for Israel, then withdrawn by Pearson. How can we ensure objectivity as we seek to increase take up of study in schools? The Balfour Project will talk to teachers and wants to hear from teachers and heads, as well as the National Education Union and other experts. I'm on a theme, as you'll have noticed, of what matters. Parliament matters. This issue is entirely political. So our national parliaments, Westminster, Holyrood, across Europe, the European Parliament, the US Congress, all matter. Lobbying your elected representative matters, as I've said. Governmental inertia is only disturbed and changed by debate, persuasion, making a noise, making a difference through reasoned argument. The Balfour Project tries to do that along with others. For example, CABU, the Council for Advancement of Arab-British Understanding, MAP, Medical Aid for Palestinians, to name but two. The Balfour Project works closely with UK parliamentarians on a cross-party basis on parliamentary activity in the Lords and the Commons. And the charity is also the Secretariat for European Parliamentarians for Israeli-Palestinian Equality. MPs from 14 European national parliaments and the European Parliament with the same aim. What's the aim? Equal rights for Israelis and Palestinians. I think that network needs to grow in number and importance, and it will. I find the argument in favor of that aim, equal rights for Israelis and Palestinians, simply unanswerable. Who can contend that equal rights are wrong. It's a nonsense. It doesn't make sense. That's why it's right to seek change for the common good, including our own. I'm coming to a close. In this talk, I have tried to summarize the aims of the charity 
in education and related advocacy, touch on the UK's historic role, which gives us a responsibility to work for equal rights. Describe the now for good and ill. Suggest some ways in which we can seek to influence our political decision makers now and to enhance the knowledge of young people who, as the true saying goes, are the future. I look forward to your questions, moderated by Diana, and I'll end my talk simply by saying the Balfour Project tries to do good. I know we do no harm. We try to do good. If what you've heard today or seen on our website echoes, finds an echo with you, please find a way to donate to the charity. We seek regular giving, one-off giving. We seek giving. And I'll come back to that at the very end of the afternoon. Over to you, Diana. Hello. Um, thanks for that, Vincent. I was just um, trying to collect some of the questions. We've had a flurry of them, as you can imagine. Thank you so much for that talk and lots of people um, thanking you as well for your talk. Um, as I said at the beginning, if you have any questions, post them in the chat box. We're going to try to get through as many as possible. And um, those that we don't or any comments that I don't read out, I will be sharing the chat box with Vincent so he will see all your comments, even if we don't address them during this talk, as we don't have a huge amount of time to get through everything. Um, so thank you again, Vincent, for going through. I've posted the links, most of the things that you mentioned, including um, a link to meet our fellows and their um, projects. One of them, one of the projects was actually an online exhibition. And you can access that now. I've, I've posted the link in um, for the projects, so you can see the link for their specific one, but it's fascinating. It's got some amazing artists from the region, so do have a little look. Um, I just want to read a lovely comment from Maliha. As a year 13 student, I feel empowered after your talk. Thank you. What advice would you give us for approach in schools? Well, thank you. I think it's important to portray this issue for what it is, an issue of equal rights. In my opinion, it's not a religious issue. It's a political issue. And it's, a, it's an issue where Britain has a particular responsibility from the past and a role for the future. Because it is not likely, it is not probable that the peoples of the region are gonna resolve this issue alone, leaving it to the people, which is sometimes said, uh, is ignoring the asymmetry of this issue. The power lies with one people through their government and army, armed forces, and the, the people that uh, have suffered, uh, everybody suffered, but the people who have suffered through the Nakba and beyond uh, are, are not, not empowered. So coming back to the question, how to address it in schools. I think the right thing to do is to talk to the teacher. If there's a teacher on uh, history or politics, talk, um, ask the question, is it a subject that could be discussed in 
uh, in a forum in, in class. Um, I wouldn't set the frame for that. I wouldn't set the framework for that. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue for the school itself to, to handle. So I would make that point first, talk to, the, talk to a responsible teacher, um, make the suggestion that there could be a debate. Uh, there could be a, a talk. Uh, the Balfour project, for what, it, for, for, for what it's worth, is was prepared before the lockdowns to, to visit schools and to talk. There are others who do that. Um, solutions, not sides, one voice, uh, others. Kabu, I think, does some educational outreach as well. So there are resources, and perhaps the last remark on this question, there are resources available. I, I'd like to think that our own uh, website of the Balfour project contains academic resources. There is Parallel Histories, which is a, uh, a very well-organized teaching method uh, involving uh, Michael Davies, founded by Michael Davies, which tries to tell both narratives. And, and I would say here, both narratives are valid because they are truly held by the people who believe them. Um, so I think, I hope that gives you some ideas. Uh, and if you need more, drop us a line. Thanks, Vincent. Um, yes, we had another question from Claire Walford, which I think you kind of touched on um, about what subject this issue would be taught under. And it could come under a few, as you said, geography, history, politics. Um, we have heard from a lot of our teacher supporters that they want to teach this subject, address this subject, but at times um, it can be quite daunting. It's quite a controversial issue. They're worried about covering it appropriately, correctly, etc. So as you said, we have lots of resources on our website. We have all of the past recordings from our uh, webinar series on the website that and um, a couple of films on there as well. So please do check that out if you are a teacher who is looking to address this topic and wants some resources. Um, we've got a lovely comment from Sui Ang, one of the founders of Medical Aid for Palestinians. So um, she has a very dear place in our heart, doesn't she, Vincent? So she says thank you to us. Um, today's webinar is especially focused and positive and gives us a possible way forward. So we will go forward with you, which is just lovely. Thanks for that, Sui. Um, there's a really interesting question, I thought, from Baroness Meacher, Molly Meacher. She asks, as a crossbench peer, what can she most usefully do? Huh. I said several times that Parliament matters and um, Baroness Meacher matters. Um, what does Parliament do? In circumstances where the government is not taking its responsibilities fully, then parliamentary questions, debates, debates have been few since uh, the lockdowns uh, because of the rather you know, ex extraordinary situation. Of, um, of online parliament uh, with few people in the chamber. Um, in September, October, I hope there will be a debate in the House of Commons on the question of recognition, recognition of the state of Palestine alongside Israel. Britain recognized Israel in 1950. Britain believes in the two state solution, but doesn't believe in recognizing the second state, the other state in that solution. I find that aberrant. Now, coming back to uh, Baroness Meacher's question, it's quite important to work with others. Uh, I'm sure you do, 
but to work with others, work with people like Baroness Blackstone, um, uh, Lord Falconer, others in the uh, in in the House of Lords, and it's it's possible for the House of Lords to be more reflective than the Commons, in my experience. And there's a lot of expertise in in the House of Lords. Um, it can feel like an uphill struggle, and let's face it, it is. If the government is set in, on a particular course, diverting it by, by debates is hard, but it's the parliamentary way, it's the democratic way. Persuasion, knowledge, reasoned argument, and persistence are, I think, all, all needed. And I'm pretty sure Baroness Meech has got them all. Thank you for that. Um, and you are welcome to get in touch. Anyone if, who's got any further questions or wants any further resources, I'll post the email address in the chat box in just a moment. Um, but first, let me give Vincent a bit more work. Another question. Um, US, you touched on the US and, and President Biden, and I also agree that he is infinitely better than Trump. What little that means. <laughs> uh, US President Biden has maintained the US Embassy in Jerusalem, Al-Quds. How can he possibly, how can you argue that the US admin are still advocating, no, not you, how is Biden advocating, um, advocating a sustainable resolution to the Palestine quest for self-determination and a just peace? I think it's fair to say, I try, I try to say it, that um, President Biden is not is not the answer to our prayers, but he is the answer to the prayers of the world in you know, removing democratically uh, President Trump. Um, on this issue, the instincts of the administration will be managerial. They will be to choose their ground for discussion, choose their issues for argument. There will be a big argument about Iran and uh, nuclear weapons with Israel. Um, and there is, as we all know, a strong pro-Israel lobby uh, called the Republican Party these days, and also the, um, the lobby on the Hill. Um, so what to expect? Well, I think, we, I think our expectations should be low, but our ask should be high. The expectations of success, of, of, of rapid movement, by the Biden administration should be low. But using the words of the administration, uh, Tony Blinken has talked about equal measures of liberty, prosperity for Israelis and Palestinians. How is the US administration going to implement that hope, that aspiration? How is it gonna make it real? So questioning the administration is important. Public diplomacy is important. Um, I am impressed by maybe small straws in the wind, uh, the New York Times showing photos of women, children, old men dead in Gaza after the May fighting. Um, I think that in America, I'm not in America, but I think that in America, there is a growing awareness among those who want to be aware of the inequity of the situation that can be built on. Um, so I'm hopeful, but I'm not hopeful of a 
radical change by the Biden administration uh, in its coming three years. Um, if anything, radical thinking should come more from Europe and the US be brought on board. That's also an aspiration rather than a certainty. Um, there are small flickers of hope in Europe, in Ireland, in Belgium and elsewhere, that this issue is coming back into focus, back into the limelight, because leaving it in the dark just leaves it to fester and that, that can't be allowed. Thanks for that, Vincent. We've got a question that's coming from Ralph Cairns. What does Sir Vincent think that the British government could have done differently once the British mandate had begun to, to promote fairness and justice for all pa in Palestine and Israel? Thank you. And, and Ralph is the, uh, I think, the executive secretary of the um, uh, British Palestine Police Association, um, which I respect. Now, the what could we have done? Well, uh, hindsight's a glorious thing. Um, what I would say is that the, the reality of what we did between 1917 and 1948 um, was to, as Sir Martin Gilbert has said, keep back the majority in order to maintain the Balfour Declaration, which was for a minority, which is not democratic. That era was not particularly democratic and our imperial era was not democratic. Uh, Britain paid very little heed to the wishes of the majority um, in its colonies. Now, Palestine wasn't quite a colony, but it was a mandate territory and we had power. Uh, what could we have done differently? Um, it is a, an intrinsically difficult problem. But if we had operated on that simple basis of equal rights, equal opportunity, we would have been in a better place and we would have left in a better situation. There would always have been spoilers, as today, as today. There are spoilers on both sides, on the Palestinian side and on the Israeli side, who don't want peace. There are spoilers. But I think that if we had operated on the basis of equality, of equal rights, of equal opportunity, we would have been in a better place. Um, and we would have, I think we had to leave, but we would have left uh, a better situation. Thanks for that clear answer, Vincent. Sorry, we've just got so many questions coming through and I'm trying to make sure that we ask a question at least on each kind of topic that comes in. Um, you've ans actually answered quite a few of them that have come in um, anyway, so that's very good, thank you. Um, just bear with me. Um, Gian Petro Valorsa, sorry, my apologies. What are the main points of the critics of the Jerusalem Declaration on anti-Semitism? And what are the differences between that one and the IHRA um, definition? Okay. Um, I haven't heard much criticism of the Jerusalem uh, Declaration on anti-Semitism, except that it came second, um, chronologically. 
the IHRA definition came first. I recall, uh, I'm not an expert on this, but I recall that the author of that uh, definition made it clear that it was not intended to have any regulatory function. But it's been taken that way by several US states and up to a point by our own Secretary of State for Education in holding it as a term of law, almost. It's vague. The IHRA definition is vague. And I don't think it should be used for any legal or financial or other regulatory purpose. The Jerusalem Declaration on Antisemitism has the merit of clarity. It's more precise. To give you one example, the, the Balfour Project does not take a position on, on boycott, divestment and sanctions. You will find that charities do not. And we are a charity, we do not. But the Jerusalem Declaration on Antisemitism does take a position. And it says, in and of itself, BDS is not anti-Semitic. In and of itself, BDS is not anti-Semitic. That's an example. It's quite a long declaration. Um, the text is, uh, I think, uh, in the chat and is available, uh, freely available. And the people who signed up to it um, impressed me. I don't know the, the full range of Jewish legal minds, but uh, Philippe Sands has signed, Brian Klug has uh, helped to present the Jerusalem Declaration to uh, the EU Commission, which is currently thinking about its policy on anti-Semitism. And that policy has been largely based on the IHRA definition. And the request to the Commission is, please take into account this newer, more precise definition when you're thinking about policy guidelines. Because to think in the old way is to, is to think in a way that is vague and is capable of subjective interpretation. And we don't need subjectivity in this sensitive area. Thank you again. Um, I think we've got a couple of questions, time for a couple of questions left. So um, I don't think we'll be able to get through many more than that. But we've got a very interesting one from Martin Linton, who, as you know, is former, former uh, Labour Battersea MP and also runs Labour to Palestine, um, Travel to Palestine, where which brings delegations over um, to the area to be able to see what's actually happening on the ground. So really useful, isn't it, to get out there and actually see what's happening. Um, he says, as a former Consul General, can you tell us what the Consul General can do to stop the evictions in Sheikh Jarrah? And without revealing personal details, can you tell us anything about the locally employed staff at the Consulate General in Sheikh Jarrah who are threatened or their families are threatened by eviction, bullying and harassment by the settlers? Mm. The uh, Consulate General is based in Sheikh Jarrah. Um, there is a settlement, it used to be called the Shepherd's Hotel, but there is a settlement 100 yards from the uh, office building and the residence uh, of the Consul General, which are co-located. Um, so Sheikh Jarrah is a theatre of, of the settlement activity and the settlement resistance. Um, it's worth remembering that Jerusalem 
is, uh, in legal terms, separate, corpus separatum, from uh, Israel, and that East Jerusalem uh, is occupied territory. Now, on, on Martin's specific question, um, what the Consul General can do is to draw attention to the situation um, that's happening. Philip Hall, the previous Consul General, uh, has visited uh, villages which have been bulldozed by the IDF and has given uh, video interviews from the site. Um, Diane Corner, the current Consul General, who is relatively a relatively recent arrival, um, has done something very similar. What does that show? It shows a good thing, which is that the British government, which authorizes these activities, um, is willing to send its representatives to the field to show our government's disapproval of what's going on, our condemnation of what's going on in terms of uh, evictions, demolitions, um, even settlement expansion. What is harder is to see the, uh, the linkage between that demonstration of disapproval and action to prevent a recurrence. I was Consul General between 2010 and 2014. In 2012, either William Hague as Foreign Secretary or Alistair Burt as Minister of State for the Middle East condemned settlement expansion plans, I think 20 times at least in that year, 20 times. The condemnations did not have teeth and the condemnations did not work. So my point is the Consul General can and does tell the truth, report the facts, report developments, report what may come um, so that London and, the, and the, the Whitehall machine, the Foreign Office, other government departments, number 10, are fully aware of the realities. Then you come back to the question, so what? So what does the government do? It condemns, give it credit for condemning, but it doesn't act. And therefore the condemnations get repeated because the acts, the acts get repeated, the actions of the uh, of settlement expansion, etc., get repeated. On the issue of local staff, I'm not well informed about who lives there. I'm not well informed about who lives there. Um, I am aware from my time that local staff in uh, living in the West Bank and trying to get into, uh, into Jerusalem to do their job, um, first of all, they couldn't drive in. If you, drive, if, you're, if you have a car in the West Bank, you can't drive into Jerusalem. It's not allowed. Um, the only cars that move are Israeli registered cars. So the ability of my staff in those days to get into work was heavily dependent on the IDF, on whether, there were, whether or not there was a sudden checkpoint, uh, what they call a flying checkpoint, uh, roadside, two cars blocking the way and queues. Um, so I, I can't answer Martin's question directly on who lives where now, but I do know that the daily life of the consulate general staff is comparable to the daily life of Palestinians in the West Bank, which is hard, permit driven, and subject to sudden and unexpected delay, change. Uh, it's, it's a hard life.
Well, we have a comment from Angus Rhodes who says Vincent sounds very statesmanlike in a good way and that it's a shame you were not the one in charge at the time, <laughs> which I agree <laughs> wholeheartedly. Um, and we've got also a question from Mahdi Ascaria who asks if we're planning face-to-face -face events in the near future for the foreseeable there online. But I don't know, Vincent, if you want to comment on this. Yes. Um, let me tell you what we have in mind. Um, we are interested in the, the 2nd of November because it's the anniversary of uh, the declaration that gives us our name. Um, and we're hoping that there can be an event in Parliament around about then, around about the 2nd of November, we're working on it. That'll be primarily to engage parliamentarians like Baroness Meacher and, and others to enable them to, to come together um, and to, to exchange views. Um, that's one face-to-face -face event. It won't be for the general public necessarily. Um, we have done such events in the past. We did it way back in 2017 for the, for the centenary of the, uh, of the declaration. We had 1,200 people in Methodist Central, Central Hall for that. Um, I think we will get back to that, but it feels like 2022 rather than 2021 for such, for such events. We're also interested in visiting universities and having face-to-face -face contact with students and academic staff. We're interested in that. Um, I mentioned schools and the earlier question about, um, about how to address issues in schools. I think we would like to do more in terms of um, addressing sixth form colleges and uh, those who want to hear um, with our take, which is that the people of Israel deserve respect and the people of Palestine deserve equal respect. We come back to that question of equality. Back to you, Diana. Um, we've got from Ian Tegner. Um, to what extent, if any, do you think the British government recognizes the special responsibility of the UK on which you place great emphasis? Not enough. The um, occasional remark from Boris Johnson is to talk about unfinished business, the unfinished business of the Balfour Declaration. Um, he wrote an article in the Daily Telegraph in 2017 when he was Foreign Secretary, which included that remark. And I still en enjoy, enjoy is a good word, uh, enjoy playing back to him his remark about apartheid and the two-state solution. It's important. Um, it's quite hard for anybody to persuade politicians of 2021 to take responsibility for politicians of 1917 to 48. There are many get out clauses. There are many ways in which not to, not to take that, uh, that responsibility on. But I think it's part of the job of this charity to tell the truth, to say what Britain did and to say, or try and try and say why Britain did it and to draw the line, draw the link between what happened pre-1948 up to 48 and what's happening today, and to say Britain's got a role to play in addressing the subject of equal rights for two peoples in one region. Um, so the short answer to the question, I'll be short now, is not enough. Um, there's more to do. And what matters, in my opinion, is not so much apologies. I saw a reference to apologies in the, in the chat. Not so much apologies as doing something better next and for my money 
recognition of Palestine alongside the state of Israel is, the, is a next thing to do, a logical thing to do, to recognize and to show esteem for the rights of the Palestinian people alongside the people of Israel um, and in an ideal world in two states. Um, thank you so much, Vincent. We have had a couple of comments from Colin Morris. Um, it's fair to say he seems quite uh, pessimistic about the chances of achieving any real change from actions such as writing to your MPs, for example, he says contacting UK government or MPs results in bland holding replies and nothing changes. So perhaps we can end um, this talk on the best way forward for everyone attending. What can we do to have any kind of impact on this? Okay. Um, I said we're a creaky democracy. We are a creaky democracy. Um, I wouldn't give up. Um, I remember some um, uh, delegation of Catholic bishops visiting the, uh, visiting the region while I, while I was Consul General. They, they go every January, visit Gaza, visit the West Bank, um, to talk to the living stones of Christianity. Um, the originals, if you like. Now, uh, one of their complaints was, we're not being listened to to which my response was shout louder. And that came out in a future communique of the same group uh, in a subsequent year. Now, it, it can be demoralizing, it can be depressing to keep trying and not to see tangible results. I'm conscious of that. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of reality. Now, I said in the talk, what people want us to do who like the status quo is to get tired go away, get fed up. We shouldn't do that. There's more to it than that. There's more at stake than, than our, you know, uh, how should I put it, than our, than our interest. It's, it's, it's more than that. Um, so what can we do? Well, there are, there are a multitude of ways to be constructive. One is joining a friendship group or a twinning association linked to Palestine showing Palestinian people that there are people in the UK who respect them, who wish them well, and who are thinking, speaking, talking, uh, and actually giving them a voice in the UK, actually enabling them to speak in the UK. That's a key point too, that Palestinian voices should be heard here. And when, when flights resume, Palestinians should come here and speak for themselves. We shouldn't speak for them, they should speak for themselves. Um, that's one thing. Uh, there are charities who do good. Medical Aid for Palestinians, we've talked about with SWE and uh, the, the current team, um, are a force purely for good. They do no harm. They repair harm and they try and prevent harm, physical harm and mental harm. Um, is there more to be done? That's a matter of individual choice. Uh, there are a large and maybe too large a number of organizations uh, focused on the, on the conflict, on the, on, on, I don't like the word conflict anymore, uh, on the situation in Israel-Palestine. They lack cohesion. So some effort to increase the cohesion of those who think that change needs to come and who are in the UK or in Europe or in America, more cohesion among them is highly desirable. Um, I know that one of our questioners uh, who's written me an email 
is interested in the role of the churches. And I've written back uh, to the US about that. The, the role of the churches is important. They are a moral force. And they care, by definition, Christian churches about the Holy Land, the home of Christ. So their voice needs to be heard. In the House of Lords, to come back to Baroness Nietzsche, it's heard through Christopher Jessen, one of our patrons, uh, who asks questions which the government finds difficult about recognition, about the rights of the equal rights of Israelis and Palestinians. Um, that's a parliamentary angle that the Church of England can exercise. Um, but coming back to the key question, what can we do? Well, if I may end on a, unless there are more questions, Diana, on a note of uh, a financial note. The things I've talked about, the fellowships, the thoughts about education in schools, the activity with parliamentarians, the public activity that we hope to resume in 2022, the webinars that we do now. Um, some of them are free to air, like the webinars. The activity with the fellows will cost us 40 or 50,000 uh, pounds in 2021-22. Uh, we will pay each fellow a stipend and encourage them to be active on the basis of the Balfour principles uh, in their campus. That's money. Um, so I would end, I think, by saying, uh, if you are moved or impressed or even interested uh, by what you've heard today and what you might see on the website, please think about a donation to the Balfour Project. Um, we live and die by the goodwill of people like you, of our supporters, of our subscribers. And if we acquire more money, we can do more things, we can make more noise, and we can try and make more of a difference educationally and in terms of advocacy. That's what we want to do, um, if you will let us do it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Vincent. I would like to offer an apology to Saliha Rahal because the Biden question about the embassy, that was from her, I missed out her name. And um, I also would like to just say as a Palestinian myself working with the Balfour Project, I'm incredibly proud to be working with the Balfour Project because I see how much the trustees and the executive committee and so forth work on getting not only different perspectives, but also a strong Palestinian voice, which is often sometimes forgotten, neglected, so, and so forth. So, um, and speaking of having the different perspectives, we're really excited, as we said at the beginning of the talk about our next talk um, with Hannah Weisfeld from Yachat. So I will post a link to the website here. If you're not already on our mailing list, then we do uh, recommend you sign up to the mailing list to be the first to hear about it. Um, it's not actually on our website because it was only confirmed today, but we wanted to share it with you all um, so that you can be the first to know about that. That's on the 2nd of September. So uh, we've had loads of comments in the chat box, thanking you, Vincent, for your talk, for clarifying a bunch of points, um, for the insightfulness and so forth. And um, we hope to see everyone next time. So thank you very much, Vincent. On behalf of all the attendees, I wanna thank you. And um, attendees, on behalf of Vincent and I, would like to thank you also. So we'll see you all next month for our next in our monthly webinar series. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you until, until the next time. Bye, Bye. now.